Hey, dude. Hey, Simon. How are you? I am delightful. Uh, Trying to stay warm. Yeah, the transition. So as a quick background, Simon and I just went to Africa together uh, to film in Burkina Faso about some irrigation systems going into some really, really poor villages to help them farm during the dry season. Um, and while Simon, you and I had met in Vegas briefly at NAB, this is our first time working together and really spending any amount of time together. And I'll say to anyone out there, if you really want to get to know somebody, just go to Africa with them for 12 days and uh, you can just speed right through all of the formalities of a relationship. Just that's, sleep underneath some bats next to somebody and, and you form a bond. It's what, That's definitely one way to break the ice. Yeah, for sure. Um, so as a quick uh, introduction, what do you, how did you get into video? What is, what is most of your – I know you do a lot of stuff abroad and that's sort of what you're – your goals are to do more of, but that's not all you currently do. So, so what is, is true. who is Simon Eisenbach? So si- I am Simon Eisenbach. Um, and I got into video accidentally. Um, so I have been doing work overseas in developing countries since 2007. And that was before I had even touched a camera. I picked up a camera my senior year of college, which was fall of 09. And that was only because I needed an elective for college. And the only one that fit my schedule was intro to digital photo. And so... What a happy mistake. Yeah. Um, So that class, I started with a Nikon D40 which was a stills only camera, but it got me going in that world. And then I started carrying that camera with me overseas and stuff. And then I really liked photography. So I decided that I wanted to upgrade and get a different camera. And when I got the Nikon D7000, that was when I was introduced to video. And I, being me, I was like, oh, I wonder what the video stuff is like in this camera. And so that's where I got into video. So when did you start Simon Eisenbach Productions and become a professional videographer? I I started Simon Eisenbach Productions in 2013. Um, but I had no intention originally of starting my own company. Um, I started shooting video in about 2012 a little more seriously. And... When I was, so kind of how it all actually came to be was I moved to Taiwan for six and a half months in the summer of 2012, came home right before Hurricane Sandy hit. And then I, just after all of that fiasco and finally getting home, I got a phone call from my dad and he was like, Hey, I need someone to go to Burkina with me. Your mom wants me to have someone with me because this is the first time that he was traveling after he had gone through chemo from having some cancer. And so I was like, well, I got nothing else to do and he's paying for the trip. So yeah, I jumped on a plane with him and went to Burkina Faso. And so while we were there, the trip ended up being a crazy, not what we expected Um, but while we were there, we got kind of a tour of all of the stuff that the org was doing in the country at the time. And I realized that the biggest problem with what they were having and what they were trying to do was, or sorry, 
the biggest problem they were having in what they were trying to do was that they couldn't show people the issues and what they were trying to solve in a manner that would actually get people's attention because the people that are on the ground there aren't photographers. I mean, you know, John, yeah. Could you, could you imagine John who's a 61 year old man who's been in construction for most of his life trying to do quality photo video, like what we do, you know, the cameras have gotten so good that it's very easy to take a good picture without knowing much. But when I see people take vertical photos with their phone of everything, I just it just breaks my heart because I know I know there's right. there's a weakness there. But John has right. a whole lot of strengths. John is an incredible human being, but I'll, I'll oh. give you that photography is not his forte. That anything technology is not John's forte. Yeah. And he will be the first one to say it. Um, but so going around and seeing it and realizing that a lot of what these organizations need is someone to come in and help them put out quality content. And so it kind of became my goal to work with organizations and NGOs and nonprofits in developing countries to put out quality content so they can do better fundraising faster and so on and so forth. So, so you get to go in and act as a catalyst as your goal to help them do more of what they do best. Exactly. Exactly. So my goal is to enable them to do what they're trying to do. Gotcha. And so that is what stemmed me trying to figure out. Initially I was looking for a job that would allow me to do it. And I didn't, there was nothing really popping up at the time. So I was like, well, the only way that I'm going to be able to do this and have the freedom to go over when I need to, which normally you don't get enough vacation time from a nine to five to be able to go do that kind of work because with the travel and everything, it's in order to really do a project is at least two weeks. Yeah. And in America, that's a lot. Right. And so I decided that the only way to do it was if I was going to work for myself. And so that is how the production company started and it's evolved drastically over the years. So the abroad stuff aside, what do you shoot domestically? Like, like what are, what is a given week like for you when you're shooting in the States? When I'm in the States, I'm dealing with medium to large nonprofits and medium sized businesses, uh, pretty much anywhere from, one to $50 million years in business. Um, and even the nonprofits I work with are doing about the same amount of business every year. Um, so do you do like a lot of fundraising videos for the nonprofits? It varies. I do fundraising. I do awards. I've done some TV commercials. I do some photo stuff with them as well. So it really, it's a wide spectrum of things that I do. Cool. Well, your, your passion is the abroad stuff. Is that fair? So I was fascinated as, as so I got this gig because you asked Dane to go with you, uh, our our mutual friend and Dane was unavailable. And Dane said, you should talk to Sean. So along I came, but for me, I had, God bless you. Sorry. Uh, for me, I had never shot, completely off the grid before like dane and i did a job up in uh northern michigan where we were filming at a camp and we had no reliable internet access but we had power we knew we were going to be able to charge our equipment and we could drive into town and get what we needed to get right 
Um, and so the first thing that sort of struck me as we were preparing to go to Africa together is a, how complicated things were as far as having backups of backups to make sure that, you know, if, if we lose a camera, if we lose a lens and I don't mean misplace, I mean, sand gets in these things, weather, heat, like stuff can yeah. just go wrong and being stranded without anything is not a solution. So I was at first overwhelmed by like the high stakes nature of like, if we actually want to come back with something, we've got to do a whole lot to prepare that. Right. But along with that was your preparation and your experience. Like you knew you thought of things I didn't think of and would never have thought of because you've done this and things about portability yeah. and weight and batteries and minimizing the number of types of batteries and stuff. And like knowing that you might not even, be able to charge what you want to charge. And, and even chargers, because the less types of chargers, it's more weight reduction. Yeah. <coughs> and so, so as we were weighing our bags, I rem like we were within <laughs> pounds of our, of our 23 kilo limit or whatever it is. Um, 22.5. Yeah. We, it, but it was, you know, we were shuffling stuff around trying to make ends meet. Um, just oh, yeah. to make sure that, that we could get on the plane and get there. And that's not well, something but, that I've had to deal with before. I mean, even coming back, our carry-on issues that domestically you would never – like, yeah, they've got carry-on bag rest weight restrictions, but they never weigh them. And, I mean, we had three 30-pound carry-ons. Yeah. And, and that's not okay. Yeah, that was that, – they were not happy. But thankfully, we know people. Yeah. John, not a great photographer, but a fantastic smooth talker in French and Jula, uh, was able to get us through security pretty easily. Yeah. Thanks, John. Well, he's also, he's also the, and he is a perfect example of relationships get you through life because he's been in Burkina for 30 years and knows people all over and has relationships with a lot of airport staff that makes it a lot easier for us to do things and so on yeah you you said several times as we had meals prepared for us and we had an actual shower uh available to us it didn't shower it Let's didn't the drain shower loosely but water <laughs> fell from overhead on top of us um, and you didn't need to use a bucket no but like you were comparing dane's trip to dr congo uh to nebobongo to my trip to pundu Oh, you had it so easy. Yeah. And, and and so part of me wants to just say thank you for making it as as easy. And, and that's a, a very, very respective term um, compared to, I'm sure, your experiences. But mine, I was still very much a fish out of water, um, literally uh, <laughs> out of water quite a bit. But what – so this trip to Africa, what was different? What what went smooth? What didn't go smooth compared to some other trips you've gone to film before? Um, I mean, it went smooth that we knew where we were staying, where we were working, and all of that stuff. And we had everything kind of laid out where we were going. What didn't go quite as smoothly was the power um, – we were supposed to be able to charge off of that a massive bank of batteries that was intended for the well that was at the school that we were sleeping at. But and so obviously not everyone was there, but to give everyone a little backstory, we were staying at a Bible and agriculture school, and in this building, there was this bank of probably 15 batteries that were set up that were supposed to be allowing a 
solar powered well to pump water at night what we found out upon arrival was that the batteries hadn't worked in like nine months or a year and so the batteries were completely shot so that was a surprise and so we had to quick jump on that one and then figure out another charging solution um and so that was obviously like priority number one when we got there um Thankfully, we were able to get it where we were able to charge everything for the most part that we needed to. Um, we weren't quite as heavy on batteries as we were in DR Congo. Um, we did we shot a little bit less than what we did, like data-wise, which made it easier on batteries as well. Um, and then just some of the scheduling things that didn't give us certain opportunities that i was hoping for to be able to tell certain aspects of the story of the irrigation system so now it's figuring out how to work around what i do have to be able to do what we need to do to accomplish the goal yeah and and that was sort of as i was approaching the trip and preparing part of me was thinking like you know maybe i'll vlog it's been a while since i've made a youtube video and this will definitely be an experience but A, I was so quickly overwhelmed by the entire experience that I didn't really know what to say. I didn't have thoughts in my head. Everything was just sort of overwhelming. But B, it was so piecemeal that it's difficult to be like, well, today we're going to go do this and this. It's more like, well, right. today we hope this will happen, but we may right. end up driving to a welder in Watercoa. We may end up you know, troubleshooting right. the legs on this tower for you know, two hours. And so it was just so piecemeal, which in hindsight probably would have made a good vlog. But when you're sitting there, like it's difficult Well, compared to other times that I've vlogged, the time was so valuable there. And we had such, such little of it that the whole, like even with the group, when we wanted to stop and get footage of the place where you'd done the prototype a couple of years ago, like we just needed, you know, 20 minutes to film there, but that's still like a huge inconvenience and like we were out of time and stuff. So I felt right. bad. And like you wanted to do when we did the, uh, how you did the easy rig, um, right. with, with your FS five, it was like, well, 10 minutes well, to talk about this is a lot in, in Africa time when we're, you know, up against the, the clock trying to get, we were, power to work we were also not on a camp. We were also not on a camera centric project we were accompanying a construction project with a bunch of guys that were like here is our goal of building things you guys just happen to be doing something else alongside this if it was a camera centric trip where all we were doing was capturing content it would have been very different because obviously that would have been more of the focus yeah Um, but I mean, it's also a good thing that we did stop in that village because the pump had broken and a long time ago. Yeah. And so it's one of those things that my need ended up helping the situation because they were able to figure out that they had to fix an issue. Yeah. So it, but it's one of those that also over there, everything runs on its own timeframe and things just happen when they happen. Um, we also got really lucky that we had a welder that was able to come out and help us immediately on multiple situations because that doesn't always happen that you can just call a welder and he just shows up an hour later and an hour in African time is a pretty solid turnaround. Yeah. And and I was going to say, so 
there's a lot of challenges to filming off the grid. Yes. I'll, I'll just yes. say like, um, even like I said, when, when Dane and I were up in Northern Michigan in the middle of nowhere, we still had power. Um, like right. they, they were on the grid and Africa doesn't so much have a grid, especially in the areas where we were. And so some places have solar panels and some of those solar panels have battery systems, but none of it's guaranteed to work or anything like that. So there are obviously challenges like that. Would you say there's anything that's easier with production in, in Africa compared to production in the States when you do it? Um, I think the thing that's easier is being off the grid. Everyone is there in the moment. So you're not, you're not like, you're not on your cell phone, checking Facebook, Instagram, uh, texting as much, that kind of thing. Like you're there focused on the project because what else are you thinking about? Because you're, I mean, yeah, we've got guys with cell phones that were in country communicating with people. But it's everyone's there focusing on the project in general. Yeah. The texts were and, about getting welders and, you know, the phone calls right. were about things like that. It wasn't just like, hey, right. what's up? Right. There were probably not a lot of emojis in those texts. Correct. I think it's a fair assessment. I, I wonder if many of the people actually know what emojis are, where we were. I was surprised at the ubiquity of selfies. That seemed uh, the, the people who have cell phones with cameras and stuff, which is not common, but not rare. Um, right. And in the capital, everyone's driving a motorcycle and texting at the same time. Um, oh, it's sketchy as all can be. Yeah. But the relationship of – so, so as, I, as I went back and looked at my photos, the relationship between a, a subject, an individual, and the camera, there's a lot of straight faces. And yes. as I've shown them to people, people were have asked and said like, you know, did – people were they okay with their photos being taken and i had to explain like yeah a lot of the time like we were laughing together before the photo and after the photo but when i actually raised to the camera to take the photo they straighten up and you know look stern or, or very serious it's, it's a power like that's what they're that's what they've known but that also goes back to the film days where what they saw was you know how back in the day with like photos having to be longer exposures you had to stay still mm -hmm. like way 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 back and so obviously with technology lag in many parts of the world that is what they knew and they hadn't been taught anything different so getting those smiles and those happy moments are like starting to come around but you still don't necessarily get them yeah because it's, it's still just... a cultural thing there's there's there were so many things obviously that are wildly different there oh, yeah. than they are here and I, I mean it's innumerable and being there for as, as long as we were they loved having their photo taken though yeah and, and so like as people looked like were, were they okay with it and i didn't take a photo of anyone without first like showing them the camera and like sort of right. doing the like we didn't speak the same language but i would sort of hold the camera up and nod like you know is this okay take and then they'd look at me and smile and then straighten up for the photo um right. but that element of it was a was a struggle for me a little bit. And, and even in hindsight, and I was wondering how there were times when I saw you taking a bunch of photos of, of kids and stuff. And like we had a big crowd around us and you would shoot a bunch of photos. And it all goes to serve the purpose of you're telling a story to help people and things like that. And that goes a long way to help it. But at a point, 
it almost seems like exploitation of like if you can get a photo of a really sad looking kid, it looks like a photo of a it's a powerful well, photo. So for me, I refuse to play the sad somber card. Whenever I'm working with an organization, I always want everything to have a positive aspect to it. I refuse to play the oh, these are desperate kids down in Africa. Look at them like in the mud being like homeless because it's not true. Do they have everything that we have in America? No. But these kids have loving parents a lot of times and they are genuinely happier than we are in America. And so I always put the positive spin on the entire story and I won't put out a photo if it only has a negative thought process or feeling. Yeah. And, 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 and so, so, so with that, with that desperation and, you know, like what you're saying, what, what appears to be homelessness and kids dirty and muddy. And I mean, their clothes are torn. They're not, they, they don't have the luxuries that we are quite accustomed to over here. No. And yet, that, like you're saying, like there's a happiness there that's that's a more genuine happiness than a lot of us have here in America, and that was powerful to me of seeing the 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 contrast of what I'll summarize as comfort, the contrast of you know clothing, water, food, yeah. and things like that that we've got a ton of over here that they just don't have a lot of over there, and in spite of that, there's laughter. There's there's you know crazy laughter and like people just having so much fun and happiness with their family and with their friends. And it's this true like conviviality that shines through that poverty and and through that, what we would look at and say is, you know, desperate or something like that. And that was my favorite. My favorite moments are like the perfect example owner and Koso and those kids were playing soccer. Yeah. And they, the, it's literally like balled up socks mm-hmm. is what they were using as a ball, but they were laughing hysterically. And then you'd have the random argument because of something that happened in play, but then they go right back to laughing again as soon as the, they start playing it. Yeah. So like there's the genuine happiness of the kids just because of the fact that they're out enjoying themselves. Yeah. And it was cool for me <clears throat> seeing that, like, like you said, this like sort of the argument. What I looked at as as I looked around in the different villages, there's so much problem solving. There's yeah. so much. This doesn't work, so we're gonna tie this thing to it. This snapped, so we're gonna straighten it out and put this on it. And right. we need to dig a hole. Like their shovels, some of their tools are made out of pieces of a. 55 gallon metal drum that they you know take a piece of that metal fasten it to a stick but, and they've got a shovel that works that goes really to well show how they are able to do whatever they need to do to get the job done and i think that one of the things that we struggle with in america is oh we've got to have the latest best highest quality everything but with a little bit of like work you could make something that's a little lesser do the same job we just don't want to put in the effort yeah and i the there's one picture as i i've i've near i whittled down my pictures to like 45 pictures where that's what i show people from the trip to be representative and there's I'm one, actually i'm impressed that you got it down to 45 it it was difficult 
but I think my I think the the overall library is at like seven fifty right now. You took a lot more stills than I did. You walked around with the A seven R. Yeah. I I snapped a few. I don't have a ton of like good photos from my Sony. A lot of them are just my cell phone. But one of them was when we pulled over for lunch on the way from Wagadugu to Pondu, and there's it's just a photo of a tree, but you can see the ditch that's being dug for the fiber optic cable. Yeah. And that was just such an example of like, it's not a backhoe digging that hole. Right. Like that's people with picks and shovels digging miles and miles and miles and miles of trench for this fiber optic cable to be led. And yeah. as you say, like, you know, we're obsessed with having the biggest and the best, like there's construction companies where it's not even, yeah, we've got a backhoe, but we've got a better backhoe or we've got right. the new backhoe that like, there's so the many bigger, tools that are faster. That, yeah. But there it's just, you know, this works. But, and they're also only getting paid like $2 a meter. True. But they're also being paid to do the labor instead of that money going into a machine that. Oh, hundred percent. They're, they're well, making jobs over, over there. People are cheaper than, than tools, yeah. than power tools and fixing but power tools. It's, is also which, is, not cheap. which is weird to say, but it's true. It's manual labor over there is cheaper. Yeah. And it also gives people money. Yeah, they're they're making jobs. So if yeah. if somebody is listening to this, or somebody has filmed a bunch in the United States, and they wanted to get started doing work like this, what would be two pieces of advice you'd give them for doing this properly and thoughtfully? The first thing that I tell anyone who asks me about this is you have to find a cause that you are 100% behind. Because if you're not behind what is happening, it'll show in the final product. Um, everything that I do has some sort of creating sustainable living in the country that the person's in. So kind of one of my things is I don't want people to have to become refugees for any other reason than political issues. I don't want them to be able to say, oh, I didn't have access to water. I didn't have access to food. I needed to go somewhere else. I, when I'm working with an org, they've got to do something to help create more sustainable life. Um, so that is a big thing for me, whether it's clean water, health and wellness, education around doing that kind of stuff. Those things that can help people live where they are from is what's important to me. And, and so you make so, sure your projects sync up with that. Right. Have you had to do a project that doesn't go that way? Or have you been able to, to only pick ones that you believe in? Overseas? Yeah. No, I haven't had to do anything else. Awesome. Um, it's, I have some talks with companies that have me doing other stuff, but it's not in Africa. Um, and if it was a company that wanted me to do work, like if I got hired by a company to go shoot, that I was creating content for them, I would want to make sure that there was some tie into what I'm doing. So like if a gear company called me and was like, like if Sony called and was like, Hey, we want to do something with you. I would say, all right, let's go to Africa and do this, but we got to make sure that this is involved. Not just like, Hey, let's go on safari. Yeah. Like, yeah, we can go on a safari while we're there, but I want to make sure that there's something tying in on the project that has to do with creating sustainability. 
Um, the, uh, and... A quick note on that. As, as people ask me, you know, how is Africa? I have to give a disclaimer first of like saying like, well, understand we didn't go on safari. We didn't go hiking in cool mountains. We didn't. Right. We targeted places that had a need. We targeted places that were, you know, not able to grow a bunch of food without us. Like there, there were right. some bad, bad places. And so it's not representative of the continent. And it's not fair to say like what, even though I went to Africa and filmed, I did not see Africa. I did not right. see the breadth of what Africa has to offer. Right. Well, Africa is also the largest continent in the world. Yeah. There's a lot to and... see. And we went to Pundu. Right. And that's not, yep. that's not the whole country. You went to, I think it's like 11 degrees north off the equator. Yeah. It, it got to be 115 degrees one of the days. Something like that. That was a couple of the days. A couple yeah. of days, yeah. It so, was toasty. So somebody, they've got the passion. They found the, the project yep. that syncs up with them. What's the other piece of advice you give somebody? Be flexible. You're going to run into situations that are out of your control and when you are not in your home country, you just kind of have to go with the flow. Um, every trip that I go on overseas, something happens that's completely out of our control that you just, all right, let's find a workaround and make it happen. Um, whether it's situation, whether it's equipment going down, that kind of stuff, there's always something. Um, and ask questions because culturally every country is so different um and like here's a perfect example burkina faso you have to wear pants if you're an adult male when you're out in public you have to be wearing pants in senegal if you're an adult male you have to be wearing pants and a collared shirt and (laughs) the slight subtle differences can change how people will associate with you and interact with you just because of what you're wearing And so ask the questions ahead of time to make sure that you are fitting in culturally with the people that you are trying to help and work with. Yeah, that's it. So my advice, if somebody asked me, I would say, make sure you go with somebody who has gone before to these areas. Like like that was absolutely huge. And a lot of it is for those reasons of, I would not have known to only wear pants the whole time. Like I brought a pair of shorts that I slept in. Other than that, you wear pants the entire time. Um, And then there were things about eating and hand washing and and which hands you do certain things with. um, That is not a part of my life. Left hand. Yeah. Left hand is, is for you and you alone. Um, (laughs) And so like something like that though, that's not like, there's not a sign that says that when you get to the airport, there's not like, Things like that, like we could have really offended someone or they could have thrown out all the food because now, somebody didn't give us the right you know, guidance on something like that. Flipping this back on you, what is something you wish you had known beforehand that you learned while we were there? Um, that's, a, that's a tough question and one that I've thought about. And I feel like there were so many things and it's not like knowing them would have prepared me anymore. Like I, I think one of the, one of the big cliches that I, that I pull from this trip is what I call the African pea bat. And in the little toilet holes, <laughs> bats live in them. And when you pee in the hole, bats fly out of the hole and those bats have pee on them because you just peed on them. 
And then at <laughs> night, you lay in the cot underneath the stars, and these same bats are just swarming you, but they're bats that everyone peed on all day. Um, and so I think if someone had said, like, oh, by the way, there's going to be bats swarming over your head the entire night, and those bats have pee on them. Uh, knowing that, I don't think would have changed the experience for me. But so there's a lot of little things like that. Like there were a lot of challenges that Got I know it. now, but I don't know. I, I, I couldn't have packed differently to right. accommodate the African pea bats. Um, <laughs> like there, there's nothing that would have changed. So it's hard to say like, I wish I would have known this because then I would have done that. Like I Is appreciated there... going in and being overwhelmed by everything. Is there anything you would have brought with you that you didn't bring? Um, not really. I, I brought enough cliff bars that I could have lived off of uh, for another month. <laughs> All um, right, Dane. Yeah, and 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 that was good advice from Dane. Um, but having having food, and I liked having my life straw water bottle. And even though it turns out we had filtered water the whole time. I appreciated knowing like if I needed to fill my water bottle from the well, I could right. have and and been fine. Uh so that was good advice as well. Also, Dane told me to do that. Um but yeah, in general, I don't think there's anything like there's little camera gear things that like, oh man, I wish I would have I wish I would have had my Ronin. And granted that would have been really impractical and awful to actually have, but those are the little things I'm like, oh I wish I would have oh, brought totally. this piece of gear. I wish I would have brought what, this microphone. What piece of gear would you have brought with you um it, what is one what is one piece what is like if someone was like what is one piece of gear you wish you'd brought with you what what is that piece of gear it would have been the ronin we used glide cams um due to their simplicity and and like you were saying like we got to prepare for africa and stuff goes down you can't always charge stuff and so we chose glide cams for that reason but a i'm super rusty with the glide cams um and as True. i'm sure as you've looked at the footage there are some <laughs> uh some drawbacks to my glide cam footage um but also just with how much we were moving there's shots you can't get with the glide cam there's like move and i would have loved to have like hung out the back of the land cruiser and sort of you know driven down the road and gotten some real low shots down to the ground and like to do stuff with a gimbal that you can't do i think those gotcha. go a long way to good to give good establishment um yep. and a glide cam's good for some parallax and you know for a little bit of follow but it still has that gritty handheld feel to it which is nice but i i like what a gimbal can do it can sustain those shots for a lot longer um and there gotcha. were a few shots that i got really low with the drone and was just sort of circling at you know eye level you love getting in tight with a drone i i love getting in tight with everything as you saw from how i frame my interview shots i love i love because because there's an intimacy there that you can't see with your naked eye and when when you get up really close to something, I feel like you can have a different relationship with it. Um, and so I think the gimbal is an extension of that where it, it stabilizes. It lets you stay in close, but also keep it, you know, centered and, and, you know, keep it from bouncing around. If I could really be crazy, I would say I would take the Ronin and the one wheel. Because I feel like on those on those dirt roads and stuff, there were some... Cool things where it would have been fun to to chase or to to get some some tracking shots, yeah. Just because of how expansive the landscape is and how like right. like some of these areas are so remote and like especially in Miena, um, we spent a ton of time in Miena. I spent 
two sunsets there and got to to shoot that and stuff. But it was so open and there were cows, hundreds of cows that were just sort of away. But it was difficult to show how big that is. And, like, you can put on a wide lens, but you've right. got to have a little bit of parallax, a little side-to-side motion to really put the depth in the shot. I mean, our eyes well, are side-by-side it, and that's Burkina's what that is also tough because it's so flat that, like, it's not like you have mountains. Like, in DR Congo, we at least had, like hills that you could show height everything is just like flat in trees yeah and they are some extremely large trees and some extremely small trees but like that doesn't tell you nearly as much as hills and mountains etc right and 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 that's why i think being able to do some like parallax side to side to show the depth when you don't have mountains when you don't like that's where I don't know that I would have used it every day. I mean, for fun, I would have, but, uh, but, but that, that fun. rig is, is something I've, I've enjoyed using lately. And if I could have dreamt big, I would say having, having my Ronin in a one wheel would have been a, a cool tool to have out there. Got it. Well, I've got one last question for you okay. in this episode, and hopefully this is a fun one, but you've done this a ton. And, and right beforehand, um, we got, aperture f7s uh yes they're led lights um it's actually sitting right next to me nice um what are some of your not just favorite but some like indisposable pieces of gear where if somebody stole all your stuff and you had to go back to africa you'd get a camera but what are the three or four or five other things that make filming and charging and all these things like possible like like what are your go-to this is absolutely a part of my kit for africa um so my if i had to do like this is the bare bones like you you are limited to like the minimal of all minimals it would be a sony a7 III with a 24 to 105 um and then i would probably do a ultralight tripod whether it's a manfrotto b free or my i love my little suray uh carbon fiber kit because it's just a little bit heavier duty mm-hmm. um and then the road video mic pro because that can give me a lot of flexibility for audio and then probably glide cam if that if it was bare bones of all bare bones um my favorite pickup of gear for this trip was actually the anchor 26,000 milliamp hour battery that was usb battery because yeah, you used that when like crazy. we had those power issues the last few nights because the solar was having those issues um that thing saved me from chart like being able to still charge batteries and that again goes to the sony's being able to charge via usb which saved me yeah, it was a little bit of a nuisance having to charge it through the camera, but I was still able to charge batteries. Yeah, and, and it's as we were talking about packing, like the fact that the Sony's can charge via USB meant you didn't have to take four chargers if you wanted to simultaneously charge four batteries. Like we had that many right alpha bodies and that could that could do that. Also, I would say my other my other definite go to is now the international uh, surge protector that I the those search protectors we yeah. brought out with us 
the fact that it's a 110 and 220 volt, I, I can use it anywhere in the world without having to worry about blowing it. Um, it's got four USB ports in it along with three regular outlets is huge. The, um, the one thing I was confused of, confused by with that is that the power cable that you plug in is yeah. like the whatever European two prong thing. Yeah. That's one end of it. But the other end has three uh, connectors the three. on it. Yeah. So like, Just because it's standard. Right. But I was confused at where the third one goes. Because like, when you put the American adapter on it, it's not grounded. Yeah. I don't know. And I would love to get a cable for that that I could ground it um, just for that added security against you know surges and, and tripping and stuff. But yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's a sweet little – and I, I guess – most of my chargers, save for my uh, my Draycast battery charger, most of my chargers aren't grounded, so it doesn't really matter. But right. that was the one thing yeah. I always look so for is grounded outlets. It's one of those things that, like, that's those are probably like the absolute necessities, and that stuff can really help me pack down into a tighter kit if I had to. Um, again, the with technology always changing, it's tough. But that's really like. I could pretty much do anything that was needed with that that small of a kit. Yeah. Um, it may not have certain flair that you could do with other stuff, but that would get me being able to get some quality stills, quality video, and being able to deliver something to the client. And lastly, my, my part B to this question is your question to me. If, if you could bring some extra piece of gear that, that we didn't have this time, uh, and let's say that size and weight and charging is not an issue, what would you have brought along? Uh, it would be definitely a Movi Pro with Mimic. And, like, the full two-op setup. Yeah. That way we could sit there and do some really nice camera motion that you can't do even in majestic mode with a gimbal. And I think Freefly makes the best gimbal out on the market right now. Um, but the Movi Pro is just too big and bulky for the type of work that I do. Um, I really need like an updated version of their M5 to be able to do what I want. Yeah. Well, that hey, would be my ideal. Movi, if you're listening. I've talked to, I've talked to them about it a little bit. <laughs> Send one Simon's way. Send me your prototypes when you make the M5. Speaking new. speaking of sending stuff your way, uh, if people wanted to find you, how would they Insta do that? Instagram's where I'm posting a lot of the stuff right now, and that's at Simon Eisenbach. Um, and then Facebook, Simon Eisenbach Productions. That's a little bit less right now because I'm going to be focusing more on putting video. And then there's going to be a bunch of video content coming out on YouTube if you just search Simon Eisenbach Productions. Um, the nice thing is I'm the only Simon Eisenbach in the U.S., so it makes it really easy to find me on the Google searches. Nice. Well, thanks, dude, not only for, uh, for taking me to Africa, but for uh, having this follow-up conversation and, and sharing a little bit of insight and, and uh, expertise with us. Thank you for coming and being a valuable asset on the team and surviving the project. Yeah, uh, a lot of my <laughs> friends are real happy that I survived. I think all of them, but at least a lot of I, them. I mean, I, I know there's at least one person and a puppy dog that are happy you're home. Yes, 
and that puppy dog is ready to go for a walk. So that's what's happening now. Nice. We just went for one. Sweet. All right. Well, thanks, dude. Thanks for listening, people. And uh, yeah, stay tuned for more. More adventures.